Hello and welcome back to the Historians Magazine podcast. My name is Chris and today I'm joined by Nicholas Morton, Associate Professor at Nottingham Trent University, author of multiple books on both the Crusades and the Mongol Empire, uh, which is the topic of today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem at all. It's an absolute pleasure. So today we're talking about the Mongol Empire. The Mongol Empire is the largest land empire in history. It's the second largest empire of all time, um, which I think goes a little bit under the radar, which if an empire of this size can. Um, it spanned from modern day Korea to the very eastern side of the Eurasian steppe. And realistically, we could do an entire series on the Mongol Empire, but we're going to do our very best to get through as much of it as we can in this episode. So I guess a good place to start with everything is the beginning. So can you just give us a quick rundown on where we are geographically, when in terms of time period, and what kind of starts this global superpower? Sure. So at the root of the Mongol story is an individual, which is what makes it so remarkable, um, called Temujin, uh, who later takes on the title Chinggis Khan, or perhaps to modern audiences, Genghis Khan. And he had a remarkable life, um, not a life marked solely by victory, but by many victories and defeats. But the basic point is that by the early years of the 13th century, Chinggis Khan managed to weld together a tribal confederation in what's maybe modern day Mongolia, and then to embark upon a conquest of, from his perspective, the entire planet. Because Chinggis Khan felt that he had a mandate from the eternal sky or the eternal heaven to rule all human society wherever it may be found. And he then certainly um, was very assertive or aggressive in pursuing that goal. And so in the later years of the 13th century, Chinggis Khan and then his various heirs invaded places like China, the Near East, the borders of India, all the way up and across the Central Asian steppe region to the borders of Hungary and Poland. And in fact, in 1241, Mongol armies sacked both Hungary and much of Poland in that year. So it's a vast empire from the Pacific seaboard to what they be Eastern Europe and all that falls in between. And that's it's the sheer size of it that makes it so fascinating, along with the way the Mongols then operated and ran that empire. Yeah, I guess one important point to get out of the way now is it definitely is Chinggis Khan, not Genghis Khan, isn't it? <laughs> That's correct, yes. Yeah, I know that, that seems to come up whenever the Mongols um, and Chinggis Khan gets mentioned. It's it's how do, you say, how do you say his name? But I think it is one of those, for me anyway, one of those generally remarkable stories. You know, coming from relatively nothing to arguably the most powerful and feared man on the entire planet in a very, very short amount of time. How was it able to kind of expand through through Asia and the Eurasian steppes so quickly? It's as a, as a fault line in Eurasia that we don't tend to recognise so much today. Um, it's not typically a cry that people will come out with, that the Mongols are coming or the nomads are coming. That's not something we typically say because the nomadic way of life went into such deep decline due to modernization and things like that. Before, say, the 1700s, there is a genuine fear of nomadic people 
and that fear spans the entirety of Eurasia. And the threat of nomadic invasion is very real. That's why the Chinese built the Great Wall of China. That's why along the line of the Oxus River, many Muslim societies constructed large fortress cities. And that's in many ways why Western Christendom benefited so much from its very thick deciduous forests that aren't easily penetrated by nomadic cavalry. But this is a fault line in the medieval era. It's arguably the biggest one. The ongoing relationship between nomadic peoples and agricultural peoples. And these relationships are not always military. Often they can be harmonious. They've got different things that they offer to each other. But when a nomadic confederation comes together, it can be very powerful. It's not necessarily huge in number, but these are societies where pretty much everyone is raised to to ride and shoot and hunt. And as a result, those skills translate very effectively into an army of conquest. Agricultural societies, on the other hand, typically fighting is done by elites, by the people at the top of the social pyramid. And for 99% of people, they're farmers. They might have some military skills, but they're not trained with these things. And so as a result, nomadic society is much more of a natural fit for an army of conquest than an agricultural society. Often nomadic armies can conquer very large areas very quickly because their society is mobile. And so in the case of the Mongols, not only is their population um, capable of riding and shooting and things like that, but they can move their enormous wagon cities from area to area. And so when we visualise Mongol civilization, we should be thinking of an entire landscape covered in tents. Some of these tents would have been fairly small, so the classic yurt. But when the Mongol Empire began to grow, these tents could be huge, with some accommodating up to 2,000 people. And famously, some had golden nails holding the fabric to the, to the poles. These are, these are imperial nomadic cities. And so you should visualize thousands of wagons, thousands of tents crossing a massive landscape. And then beyond that, herds of tens, hundreds of thousands of animals. And so this is a, a vast panorama. And these cities are mobile. And so they can bring their civilizations with them when they conquer other territories in a way that agricultural societies can't. Agricultural armies of invasion tend to be just fighters and they are dangerously vulnerable because they are reliant on logistics. They need reinforcements, convoys, wagons, bringing on a daily or weekly basis the food and munitions they'll need to conduct their activities. That makes them vulnerable. Nomadic cavalry doesn't have that kind of vulnerability, and so they can move very fast and very effectively in short spaces of time. But these are traditional nomadic strengths. The Mongols went a long way beyond that. The Mongols are great learners. If they fight someone and they realise they're fighting someone who has an advantage that they lack, they will pick that up. And so the classic example of that is that during the Mongol invasions of China, they realised the efficacy of Chinese siege engineers. And so as a result, when they conquered parts in time, all of China, they began to enroll these engineers in their army so that they could make use of them themselves. And so they're constantly learning and picking up new strategies and techniques, which makes them all the more effective. 
Another dimension to this is that when Chinggis Khan put together his tribal confederation, he didn't allow people simply to remain in their individual tribes. He broke them up into a different set of groupings. And then when he conquered various societies or civilizations, in some cases, not all, he either gave them the option or not the option, he forced them to join the Mongol Empire. And when they did this, they were forced to live, act, fight, even cut their hair as if they were a Mongol. They had to become Mongols, effectively. And so with every victory, every conquest, the Mongol army doesn't get weaker and smaller through attrition and losses. It gets bigger because more and more people are being corralled into joining the Mongol Empire. Now that too makes it a very effective weapon of conquest. And you might think, well, why would people fight for the Mongol Empire? The answer to that is they had no choice. So for example, the Mongols organized their armies according to the decimal system. So if you, if you were to be forcibly enrolled into the Mongol army, you would find yourself in a squad of 10 soldiers of which you were one. And if the Mongol commander had done their job right, none of those nine soldiers would be from the same civilizational background as you or any other member of the squad. So you can't form alliances or link up with each other. Then, once you've joined that squad, you'll be required to march, campaign and fight. But if you think to yourself, well, I'm not fighting for the Mongols, they're, they're my enemies, surely. If you do that, you'll do that in the knowledge that the Mongols will kill every other person in your squad. And if your squad deserts, then you will do that in the knowledge that the next stage up. So you have units of 10, companies of 100, uh, formations of 1,000, all the way up to 10,000. But if a unit of 10 deserts, the, the company of 100 is, is killed. If the company of 100 deserts, and so on and so forth. So the consequences of not fighting are extremely high. The bottom line is you're going to fight, whether you want to or not. Just one final point to make is the net effect of all of this. These are all enormous strengths for an army of conquest. But we can go one stage further, because when the Mongols conquer one civilization, they become a threat. And they conquer two civilizations, they become a very serious danger to any neighboring power. Once they've conquered 12, then any future opponent is backing away from the battlefield even before the Mongols have appeared on the scene. And so as the momentum of conquest begins to build, we should imagine the Mongols and the fear and terror they create as being perhaps a more potent weapon than their armies in their entirety. People don't want to fight them. And you actually get the phenomenon of entire countries submitting to the Mongols, even before the Mongols' armies have crossed the horizon, because they know what's going to happen and they know what the outcome will be. So why put their people through that trouble? Why not submit immediately? Yeah, there's there's lots to unpack there, and and that's a, that's a great summary, I think, of the pure speed of, and ferocity of the of the Mongol expansion. Expansion, sorry. Um, what it reminds me of when you're when you're speaking of the of the speed and you know the their ability to move so quickly, and it's it's maybe quite a strange comparison, but it reminds me very similar to the um, Blitzkrieg of the Second World War. In a sense, you have this static French army on the Maginot line with or against this very, very mobile German, you know, it's mechanized, but it's essentially a cavalry, a, a cavalry force, um, you know, smashing through, ironically, a, a European forest, but, you know, smashing through this very, very static line and, and wreaking absolute havoc behind it. Um, yeah, I think it's like you said, there's so many different factors. And I think 
we see the Mongols or the Mongol Empire as this very kind of barbarian, kind of you know simplistic, um, very not European and Western empire. When realistically they were incredibly advanced, and you know the fact that you mentioned the the adaptation of of technologies and they were very very good at that, weren't they? And and taking on not just you know engineering works but cultural things and obviously as i'm sure we'll talk later about the um about their ideas around religion and things like that it's um they they truly are a fascinating group um, to look at it does lead us nicely on to the next question which is around um and you kind of touched on at the end which was a kind of psychological effect of the mongol horde um how important was that fear uh in kind of further expanding the empire. There's a very observant Muslim historian called Ibn al-Athir, who was writing at the start of the 13th century up to the 1230s. And he, he, he was there. He was actually in the line of the Mongols' first advance. So he knew what was going on. And he told the story of a group of men who was traveling along a road and a single Mongol um, horseman approached this group of men and told them to tie themselves up. And they obeyed because they were terrified. And then it was perfectly clear that having tied themselves up, the horseman was then going to go go from, from man to man and just kill them, one after the other. And no resistance was being offered until um, the person who obviously related the story realised this is ridiculous and stuck a knife in the Mongol cavalryman and, and escaped. But it, the story reflects, you know, this is paralysing fear. This is fear so great that people simply can't resist it's 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 too much and so the, the, the severity of that as an instrument of conquest needs to be taken seriously and the mongols do a great deal to encourage this because of course if the mongols simply destroyed everyone who came in their way then yes it would be terrifying but people would have a very strong incentive to do everything they could to build up their defenses as much as possible going forward but the mongols were a great deal more clever than that because what they did was if let's say they approached a city that city wouldn't just simply be overthrown. The city would be given a choice. You can submit, you can open the gates to the Mongols, and the sooner you open the gates, the lighter your tribute will be. You will then become part of the Mongol Empire, you will then pay tribute on an annual basis, you will then do as you're told. And the leading artisans and skilled tradespeople in that city will often be rounded up and taken wherever the Mongols want them. But you will survive. If you shut your gates and offer resistance, particularly if you subsequently have to be stormed in order to be taken, then that's it. The city will simply be destroyed. And that's not just done for the benefit of that particular city. That is a strategy the Mongols adopt to make the point, not for that city, but for the next city. Here are the consequences of submitting early. You'll be let off relatively lightly. The consequences of continuing to resist to the bitter end are much more serious. And so, in a sense, they're trying to teach the next opponent a lesson. It is in your interests to submit and submit quickly, because if you don't, there'll be consequences attached to that. And so, again, this all feeds back into making them a very effective fighting force. Yeah, I think fear isn't something that we tend to attribute to. I guess medieval warfare. We it's more of a more of a modern. Like the idea of psychological warfare is a little in our heads, I guess, is more of a modern, modern idea. But it really was a huge part of their 
kind of tactics, wasn't it? All armies of this era do this a lot. Um, so the Mongols, for example, they made piles of skulls. And then for every thousand people they'd killed in that place, they would impale one person on a spear. So people could see very quickly how many people had been killed. But it's not just the Mongols. Armies from Western Christendom, armies from across the Middle East do these kinds of things. It's fairly customary to, to chop off people's heads and then to display them um, to your own people. So the walls of Cairo, for example, had often had crusaders' heads impaled on spikes on them. And we hear of crusaders catapulting severed heads into people's um, towns and castles. And they're doing this for a specific reason. They want to cause fear. They want to lessen resistance. They want to encourage people to submit without forcing them, the attacker, to go through the rigours of a full-scale siege and overthrow. I guess it's actually much easier, isn't it? If you have a string of cities to take, if you can essentially deal with one of them in the most brutal way imaginable, the next two, three, four, five may, in a sense, I guess you could look at it this way, allow you to save lives, whether that's your own or if you truly are a magnanimous Khan, you know, looking at the the potential, the lives that are saved in, in those those cities. So it's a very, very intelligent tactic, I think. I think it's a lot easier. I mean, I would prefer to not take a city than have to take a city um, just knowing the horrors of the medieval battlefield in general, um, you know, you could have an entire entire army could be wiped out in in the space of an afternoon. So it's um, yeah, very again, very very intelligent from from the Mongols. There is there is a cruel logic to it. Yes, absolutely. But of course, it's not just about the Mongols have no interest really in sacking cities. They can take a fair amount of plunder from it, but it's much much more desirable to take a city intact. And then to have all the various crafts and industries in that city continue to provide um, tax and resources into the Mongol war machine. That's a much better result. And so, yeah, the more they can do to encourage that, the better in many respects. It's also faster. A city can submit in the space of an afternoon, but it could take months to get into a city if it's going to offer resistance. So it's a great deal quicker if they just hand themselves over. Yeah, again... I think there are misconceptions, maybe even in just my own head, about the kind of brutish nature of the Mongol Empire. And I think that's why they don't get the, and it's a strange word to use, but they don't get the respect of, of say, other, other, even just medieval powers. You know, behind that, you know, the horse lord Sheik, there is a, an incredibly intelligent and efficient war machine. Something I want to just touch on very quickly um, is the religious aspect of the... Yeah of kind of Chinggis Khan's kind of worldview. Um, you mentioned it at the top of the episode, but how important and how useful of a tool was there, was the kind of the religious outlook to the Mongol Empire? It's very important. It's the, it's the mainspring of what they're doing. And it's the, it's the one justification where anyone queries what they're doing or why or when they explain what they're doing. They always come back to it. They feel they have a right to rule the entire planet that has been given by the eternal sky their people specifically. And consequently, all other societies, all other human civilizations, all other human religions, they're they're perfectly capable of carrying on their lives. They can even practice their own religion, but they must acknowledge Mongol supremacy and Mongol overlordship and be responsive to orders. And so when the Mongols send out diplomats to the Mamluk Empire in Egypt or to the Byzantines in Constantinople, 
or to Western Christendom's rulers. It's always the same. You get two choices. You can submit or face invasion, and that is it. And there's no alternative choice. And in fact, when envoys went to the Mongols to try and negotiate with them, and perhaps try and find an alternative way of creating a relationship with them, they just met with complete surprise, really, that the no, you submit or you get attacked. There's, there's no negotiation here. It's one or the other. That's the deal. And I suppose that makes it very straightforward, really. People know where they stand. What's interesting, though, is that as the Mongol Empire began to break apart towards the end of the 13th century, and various the various different sort of sections of the empire began to look for allies, how they began to reword those demands as they began to realise that they couldn't take the entire world by themselves. And actually, they did need the help of allies and people who existed in a different um, relationship to them than simply people who are they're going to fight or people who have submitted to their rule. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've already kind of started to answer the next question, which is, which is always great as a podcast host. But I want to touch on um, the kind of collapse of the of the empire because it it's relatively short lived, isn't it? it? It's kind of late late thirteenth century, um, early early fourteenth, um, and then it 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 doesn't fade away, but it it breaks up rather dramatically, doesn't it? What are the what kind of the causes of that of that breakup, and what's the kind of state of play once it's not a united empire sure so and the area i know best is the near east so perhaps if i give that as an example here the mongols invaded um what today would be sort of the region just to the north of iran or persia as it was called then um along the line of the oxus river and they began those invasions in 1219 and then in 1220 the mongols sent a reconnaissance force south of the caspian sea that up through the caucasus through the iron gates of the caucasus into what's maybe southern Russia. And then in 1230, they sent their first really big army of invasion, led by a ruler called Chormakan, who then conquered most of northern Persia, and then the kingdom of Georgia, greater Armenia in the Caucasus, before in the 1240s, conquering the Seljuk Sultanate of Anatolia, which today would be Turkey. Then in 1252, a new army of invasion was dispatched into the Near East, which reached the region in 1256. It conquered the lands of the Assassins or the Nizaris first in central Persia before besieging and then very brutally conquering the city of Baghdad, one of the world's largest cities in this era in 1258, before then pushing on into northern Syria, taking the city of Aleppo in northern Syria in 1260, and then pushing down towards Damascus. Now, that's the period of conquest, and most of that conquering was done between the years 1230 and 1258, really. So you're right, in the Near East, it's quite short-lived. But there's a bigger picture here, which is that after the death of Chinggis Khan in 1227, he had various different sons. And from those sons, and later on grandsons, and so on and so forth, that's where his successors were appointed. And so his first, the first successor was called Ogadai, who took, who was one of Chinggis Khan's sons, and then uh, after that, Guyuk, and then various others after that. But the point is the Mongol Empire is really big, and it can't all be ruled from a single place. And so the various different regions of the empire were apportioned as Ulu, or areas under the jurisdiction of a specific family or dynasty within the Mongol Empire, all those, with all the families descend, descended ultimately from Chinggis Khan. And over time, those various families descended from Chinggis Khan's son Joki, the Jokid dynasty, or from Tuloi, the Tula dynasty, and so on and so forth. 
they then had these Ulu, which they began to rule increasingly as their own territories, rather than as components in a bigger, bigger empire. But in the 1250s, when the Mongols invaded the Near East again, that then led to a jurisdiction dispute between Hulagu, the ruler of that particular, or the commander of that particular invasion army, and another Mongol dynasty called the Jokid dynasty, which felt that it had rights to the Near East that Hulagu was usurping. So the question is, where do the boundaries between the various different dynasties, Ulus, lie? And what do they do if they're crossed? And the point is that Hulagu was deemed for the Jokid dynasty to have crossed into their jurisdiction. And that then led to a civil war between Hulagu in the south and his empire, which became known as the Ilkhanate, and the Jokid dynasty in the north, so what today would be much of Russia and parts of Eastern Europe, which became known as the Golden Horde. And these two dynasties became locked in a long-term conflict over who has rights to rule which different areas. And it's notable that that civil war broke out just as the Golden Horde, or what would become known as the Golden Horde, was preparing for the full-scale invasion of Western Christendom or Western Europe, and Hulagu in the south was preparing for the conquest of all remaining resistance in the Near East. So that civil war between them blunted their armies of conquest just at the point at which they were about to complete those conquests. And those civil wars then broke out, broke, caused long-term conflict. Other civil wars broke out in other empires. And though these various Mongol dynasties always saw themselves as part of a broader Mongol empire, the coordination between those various different parts became weaker and weaker until basically they're separate states. Wow, so ironically, the only thing that saved Western Europe from the Mongols was the Mongols themselves. It, again, it reminds me very very similarly to the kind of the idea of the Franks in, in Western Europe, especially in, in the Near East. The, for the First Crusaders, as obviously you know, Nick, like the, um, the Muslim right at the time just described them as the Franks, um, probably very similarly how, you know, how they would describe the Mongols as the Mongols when realistically they, at this point they were starting to separate into these um, separating states. Also, very quickly, I did make a mistake. I said 13th and 14th centuries. And I meant 12th and 13th. I am absolutely hopeless at getting my centuries right. So apologies to anyone that's been screaming at their uh, at their at their phones for, for the last few minutes. You you weren't wrong, in fact. I mean, the Mongol Empire is formed in the 13th. It grows. It begins to break apart. But that 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 sort of separation of the various different regions of the Mongol Empire that continues into the 14th century. So, so don't worry. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you for thanks for saving my face. There, Nick. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, awesome. So. We spoke quite a lot about obviously where they come from, what the Mongols do, how they become so so powerful virtually, not overnight, but very, very quickly, and then again quite quite rapidly break down. What would you say the biggest legacy um of the Mongol Empire is? What what's what are the things that we can still see today and that we can directly try, um, kind of relate back to them? There's a huge number. For a start, and again, I'm going to focus on my own area of my own sort of specific area of expertise, which is the Near East. The Mongols brought an end to a huge number of different societies and civilizations across the Near East. An empire called the Khwarazmian Empire, which controlled much of Persia. Very importantly, also the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad. Um, the Ayyubid Empire, which is the, the heirs of Saladin, basically, overthrown by the Mongols in the 1250s or 
up to 1260. The Mongols didn't overthrow the Crusader states created by the First Crusade, but nonetheless they set events in motion that contributed to that. They overthrew the Anatolian Seljuk Sultanate. So geopolitically, it brings about a great deal of change. It also sets a lot of people in motion, often as refugees, and those refugees will also have an impact far beyond the borders of the Mongol Empire. But the factor I really want to draw out is that the Mongols leave in their wake a much more connected world. They didn't do it on purpose necessarily, but when you've got an empire that spans the greater part of Eurasia and has trade and diplomacy with everywhere else in Eurasia, then suddenly that means that peoples who previously had no real even knowledge of each other's existence, they are now in a place where they can know about each other and interact with each other. And that's a remarkable thing. And so Western Christendom, for example, its diplomats and ambassadors found themselves going as far afield as Mongolia and meeting people from China or hearing about stories about people from India. And likewise, emissaries from other parts of the world went to far-flung and distant places like Western Christendom and discovered these places for the first time. And often they went as ambassadors of the Mongols. So we hear up, we've got a report of one Christian emissary who the Mongols recruited to head out to Western Christendom, in part for diplomacy, in part because the great Khan liked the hunting birds that were raised in Western Christendom. And he went to strange places like the Byzantine Empire and Rome and France and England. And he brought back knowledge of these places to not just to the Mongols, but also to his own people and shared news about areas that they previously had very little knowledge of at all. And the Mongols themselves are learning. And so, for example, when they did um, diplomacy with the Mamluk Empire of Egypt, they said to the Mamluks envoys, oh, we've heard that the River Nile can only be crossed via an enormous bone. And this enormous bone spans the entire river. Is that true? Well, the Mamluks are trying to get into the Mongols' um, good graces. So they were very po polite in how they responded to them. So they hadn't seen the bone themselves. But the point is the Mongols are, they're, they're saying, these are our myths about you. Are they true? They're trying to learn. They want to know more. And so for me, the, perhaps one of the biggest repercussions of the Mongol invasions is this driving back of mental horizons for places across Eurasia as suddenly their emissaries, diplomats, traders go from one end of the empire to another and find out about places and plants and animal species and buildings and all sorts of things that previously they had no knowledge of, but now they do. And so in terms of, I mean, globalization is a very modern word, and yet it is a more globalized world that the Mongols leave in their wake. And that's very interesting, I think. Yeah, again, a great answer. And I think, again, it's something that we don't always attribute to the Mongol Empire. For me, it, it seems like they have a very similar effect to uh, the Vikings. Obviously, a few centuries prior to this, but this kind of, in a very different way, but, you know, you said globalization, and yes, it's a modern word, but obviously we can use it retrospectively. And I think it applies really nicely to these two groups. You know, traveling far and wide, yes, absolutely their fair share of violence, but also trade, language, culture, you know, all these kind of things that, you know, get their, get their, get, in, get into other cultures and other places on, on a scale that we are clearly still seeing today. It's, um, it's, it's surprising that I wonder how, and I might be answering your next question here, but I wonder how 
Timogen, the little boy on the, you know, the step would think, would kind of think about the effects of his empire now that we still feel, you know, almost a thousand years later. But yeah, it's, um, it, it's, 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 it's good. Um, awesome. So we always ask the same questions at the end of these episodes, just more for a bit of fun than anything else. But um, we'll start with uh, the first one, which is if you could go back to any time, place or event in time in history, where would you go and why? Okay, well, I, I, my first answer, that would be somewhere safe. I wouldn't want just to turn up and then find myself in the middle of a battle. I think for me, it's going to have to be one of the big cities of the Near East, somewhere like Aleppo, Damascus, maybe the port of Acre, maybe Mosul. And these cities would have been amazing. By medieval standards, they're huge. But because they exist at the intersection of trade routes from the Black Sea region, from Western Christendom, they'll be receiving traders from the Trans-Saharan gold routes, the Silk Roads, the Spice Routes, the sheer scale and number of people passing through the city, the different religions, different cultures, the different languages, all coming together in these big cities, interacting, sharing stories, trying to make themselves understood by people who don't speak their language. It must have been a truly amazing place to be. And so, yeah, if I were to go back in time, I think I'd want to go there and just soak it up, really, and just get a feel for what that was like, because it must have been one of the truly astonishing sights of the era. An alternative would be one of the big big Mongol tent cities, the wagon cities, because it's a site we just don't have anymore, really. We don't have vast uh, encampments. Some of the encampments you could took several days to cross if you travelled in a straight line through them. And just to see it, just to see and absorb the scale of that and what a nomadic civilization at the very peak of its power looked like, it, it must have been truly astonishing. So, Sorry, I've given you two answers there, but one or the other. No, I'd, I'd rather have more answers than less. It's always <laughs> uh, it's always easier to deal with more information. Yeah, I think the tent city thing. As soon as you mentioned it at the start of the start of the episode, it's it's really really hard to even conceptualize in your own head what that must be. I mean, the closest I, get, I guess we get now is is modern music festivals. You know, they're only two or three four days long, but you know you you know I've been to them and I've seen hundreds and thousands of obviously little plastic tents but i guess if you times that by 10,000 then you're kind of close to what these massive tented cities would be like they would definitely be a a massive culture shock wouldn't they that's a great example because also when you go to these as you say a big festival with all those tents it's it, it feels like a very different environment. It's it's totally not how you'd normally live your life. And so there is that sense of stepping into something that's a little bit unknown. And you get that sense too in the reports of the various diplomats and emissaries and uh, missionaries who went to these various cities. Um, there's a, a Franciscan friar called William of Rubruck who described it as being like stepping into a different world when he went into these places. I think he's just being honest. That, that is simply how he felt when he was going there. Yeah, that that's very reminiscent of Leeds Fest 20, 2011, <laughs> I, can, I can say that. It felt very nomadic at times. But um, yeah, I think great, great picks again. Um, I, I would probably also probably find myself in, in one of the the Crusader states um, just to see what was happening, see how things were, you know, obviously I know that they eventually do um, all 
fall rather quickly. But yeah, definitely a melting pot of culture and, and all that kind of stuff. So again, um, I, I would tend to agree. Um, and then the final question would be, if you could bring one person from this period of history all the way through to 2023, who would it be and why? That's a great question. Um, I'm not quite sure what would interest me more, actually, what they could say about their own culture that would interest us or what they would say about our own culture. Um, I'd be very interested to see how they reflect on what 21st century society looks like to them. I've got a sneaky feeling that pretty much anyone you brought to 21st century society would be fairly shocked um, in many respects, and not just by the technology and all the rest of it. But it's going to have to be... It would have to be someone who was a really good observer, could cope with that, that the step of going into something that for them would be entirely different and could then conceptualise it and respond to it. So maybe one of the, um, maybe a diplomat, maybe one of the more sort of intellectual, intellectual travellers of this era, someone like the Muslim traveller and writer Ibn Battuta, perhaps, someone like... Um, the papal emissary, John of Plano Carpini, who went to the Mongols to, um, to conduct diplomacy with them, perhaps uh, one of the Mongols leading diplomats, perhaps someone like, there's a, one of the Mongol rulers or commanders in the Near East is called Baichu, and he's got, a, um, he's got several wives, but one wife in particular seems to have been really quite prominent. And so when an emissary from the Pope arrived and said things that Baichu didn't like, she stepped in and said, no, you've got to listen to what they're going to say. And she, she, she's trying to understand them in their own terms. It's that kind of intelligence I'm looking for, someone who's interested in how other cultures operate. Someone like that, someone who can tell us more about what life looked like for them back in the 13th century, but also someone who's got a few insights in what 21st century society looks like to them. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting like paradigm as well. If, if we were obviously able to bring somebody, you know, eight, nine centuries forward in time, they would have a lot of opinions, I think, on, you know, the cultural differences. You know, let's let's take motorways and iPhones out of it for a second. The the basic, you know, person on person interactions, it, it's it's completely different, isn't it? It's um, we realistically couldn't get much further away from um, from this way. But um, yeah, that's 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 been that's been awesome, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for you know taking the time to, to jump on the podcast um, and chat about the Mongol Empire. Um, as always, I give you as much time as you could possibly want to share any social media handles, any upcoming projects, any, you know, you've, you've got several books out at the moment. Feel free to plug away. <laughs> OK, yeah. So I do have a new book um, that came out in well October in the UK, November in the US in 22. Um, it, it seems we've been fairly well received. It's called The Mongol Storm. It's been reviewed in places like the Sunday Times and the Telegraph. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to find out more about the Mongols, then The Mongol Storm basically tells the story of the Mongol invasions into the Near East. But it tells it not just from the Mongols' perspective, but from the perspective of everyone else or from as many other civilizations as I could fit in. So you get about 10 different perspectives on what the Mongol invasions meant for different communities and societies from different religions or cultures or ethnic groups and things like that. So do have a look at it if you'd be interested. If you'd like to find out more about the Crusades, um, I recently published a book called The Field of Blood, which tells the history of the early Crusader states. Or if you'd like to watch a few more videos, I do have a YouTube channel, uh, and the handle for that is at Medieval Near East. 
Although, quite honestly, if you just type in Morton and then Mongols or Crusades or something like that, you should find it pretty quickly. Fantastic. Cheers for that, Nick. And I will make sure that all of these, all of your links and everything are um, are shared with our readers and listeners because um, Nick is a fantastic historian and I implore you to check out more of his work. Um, Nick, again, it has been an absolute pleasure ta- chatting with you today. Uh, so thanks again. Likewise. Thanks, Chris. Awesome. And as always, you can um, check us out wherever, obviously, you've already found us, so you don't need to follow us on Instagram, I'm assuming, but um, make sure to um, give the uh, Medieval Edition, uh, edition 13 of the Historians magazine out now. Thanks.